Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Dominican Dimensions, a half hour of lively discussion about Catholic issues from a Dominican perspective, featuring the friars from St. Patrick Church in Columbus. And now, Dominican Dimensions. Welcome to the Dominican Dimensions, a half hour of lively discussion about Catholic issues from a Dominican perspective. My name is Father Stephen Dominic Hayes, and I'm a friar at St. Patrick Priory in Columbus. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Father Pius Petrick, our very special guest, and Brother Isaiah Biter. That's me. Yes, who is a deacon, <laughs> by the way. So he is also a cleric of great, of great learning. Let's begin by invoking Our Lady's assistance with our show. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, pray pray for for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So today, um, I'd like to take something a little topical from the newspapers as a starting point, and that Uh is, uh, I know, this is always (laughs) dicey when we do this, but uh, hopefully I think... um, this will have a larger a larger pattern, especially in, in the society in which we're growing and the society in, um, that we're in becomes more and more antithetical to the truths by which Catholics live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the, the, the acts of anti-Catholicism that have been part of just this past couple of weeks' news. You know, I mean, we've had – the big thing is the uh, attacks on – a Catholic Church property, especially the defacing and disfigurement, uh, the beheading of images of our Blessed Lord and Our Lady, um, you know, in places like as diverse as Orlando, Boston, Massachusetts, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, Alberta in Canada, Miami, um, and uh, New Haven, Connecticut. That was that was our Dominican Church. There mm-hmm. was. Desecrated the Church of Saint Joseph. That's just that's less than a mile from the Yale campus. To give if anybody knows, you know, the structure in the Haven, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course things like even the burning of churches, like the Mission of Saint Gabriel on the West Coast, you know, which was you know founded by Saint Junipero Serra. Yeah, and that's nothing compared to what's been going on in Europe. No, nothing. Yeah, right. So this is uh, so this is a situation in which I think a lot of Catholics are. Are feeling put upon. I don't think many of us are used to this. You know, there was a time when I was young, for instance, right after, uh, in the years after World War II. I mean, I, I wasn't around for World War II, but in the years after, where there seemed like Catholics were finally getting a, a reprieve mm-hmm. after the long history of anti Catholicism in this country, mm-hmm. going back into colonial times. And institutionalized. And right. institutionalized right. In, in so many, many ways, you know, which we maybe we'll get to. But um, but this is the situation we're in now, and I'm thinking that um, you know Catholics might be. I know I'm sort of thinking about how do how do you face this? How do you face it down? How do you stay faithful to Jesus and Holy Church in the midst of all this? Especially when the whole, as I said, it's not just one place; it's like a general movement. It seems the Archdiocese Hartford no, uh, acknowledged the trend in a Facebook post, saying, "Quote: The underlying motive of these sacrilegious attacks is clear." to intimidate and to instill fear in the hearts of those who worship Christ. However, our cherished Catholic faith has survived for 2,000 years in the faces of many different oppressors and is 
not about to yield now, close quote. Mm. So this is not a new thing. Oh, no. I don't – it's not uh, – it's it's ancient and it's, uh, I think, especially connected with uh, – there's an ancient pattern of it in our own society. I mean I will connect this and here you can hear the winning of the dead horse I'm beating here. Of, But I do think a lot of the current version is connected with enlightenment thought where sure. the church is seen as precisely an enemy of the life of human reason. I mean I think the whole enterprise of the enlightenment is idiotic because you know you forsake – the gospel and the sac- self-sacrificing the love of Jesus Christ in his hum- in his humanity uh, as a model for organizing society, and we choose what clever you know enlightened self-interest, which I just parse as clever greed. Yeah, it's also I mean in certain forms of progressivism, right? Is is the church with its understanding of morality, especially mm-hmm. morality in human nature, is seen as the significant obstacle to to the ideology of progressivism, and right. certainly in other forms of ideology like communism as well, that the church has been a kind of steadfast block to what they want to get across. This is why, for example, in, in, with the legalization of abortion in the United States, a pri- the primary target of a lot of the pro-abortion folks were the church, because they knew it was the church's moral voice uh, that, w- that continued the drumbeat against it, and that witness mm-hmm. to the sanctity of life that the church provides makes the church herself a target. And, and that's the part of the irony of it, right? The more the church stands up and speaks the truth to the corruption of the wider society, the more the church herself becomes a target of their ire. And it becomes, and the gulf between the two, you know, when you, when, you know, in the 50s or so, I suppose, in many ways, the kind of moral sensibility of the wider American culture and the moral sensibilities of the church were not that divergent. Well, they had a common en- enemy in g- the godless in the communism, communism, communism that sure. I grew up under the Eisenhower administration. But it also common uh, common notions of what were accepted moral practices, not all the same, but uh, understandings uh, of what good morality were, I think, There's norms time. of family life. Right, right. exactly. Uh, and especially those that sort of kind of public morality is too, uh, were, were pretty were pretty you know, there wasn't 100% overlap, but it was very similar. But now that gulf is quite large, mm-hmm. right? And so what the church has always consistently preached as the way one lives, um, not only in not only in religious practice, but also mm-hmm. in uh, moral life, uh, just does not you know, meet up with the expectation of the, of the wider society. Mm-hmm. And we live in a society that that no longer believes in toleration. Right. Right. Uh, that 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 you have a kind of extreme progressivism that looks upon people with divergent views and say, that doesn't say I can't live and let live. Right. It's that you must conform to my view, even when they win in the courts and that progressive agenda, particularly the social agenda, makes great strides in the public. As a friend of mine often says, now they they've got to go around shooting all the losers. Right. Right. Uh, they they may they may win in the mind of social opinion, but now they have to get everyone to agree with them. And if you don't, you become the subject of their ire and their violence. And what this is what I think we're seeing a little bit. I mean, and, and even in the way the media sort of prompts this, there was a story from the AP, a wretched story from the uh, Associated Press. Just essentially, the, the the tone of the article was, "Oh, look at those those awful Catholics getting money from the government." When the, oh right, I remember seeing right this, when right? the loans came out mm. and the and the church as as it was it was really one of the most horribly written articles I've seen and one of the most biased articles I've seen. Uh, and the, the whole theme of it was, oh, those awful Catholics, you know, getting money again, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got a press even out there that is kind of ginning up 
uh, uh, sort of in its sensationalist writing, mm-hmm. all that anti-Catholicism, because a lot of the people who are at the sort of the foreground of writing of stories, these sort of young journalists are basically f- uh, in the, filled with this kind of anti-Catholicism. And so even if you don't have the kind a deliberate calling out of violence against Catholics. You have a writing in the newspaper. You see it in the AP. You see it in the Columbus Dispatch. Because mm-hmm. you see it everywhere. That that just fosters a false view of Catholicism and stirs up strong anti-Catholic feelings in a way that would have pleased the know-nothings of the 19th century. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. For those of you who don't uh, maybe unfamiliar with that period, that was a period where nativist groups within the uh, country specifically rejected the uh, the immigrant the immigrants were coming in many Germans and uh, Irish at, times, right? at the time um, but um, but I mean it was really horrible you know had convents burned in Boston we had mm-hmm. we had the cities uh, churches in Philadelphia burned you had yeah, uh, all sorts of horrible accusations were publicly right, lodged against right. different mm-hmm. people in the church. I was down in uh, when I was pastor in St. Rose in Kentucky. You know, during we have a whole list of the pastors, pictures of pastors from 1806. And during this period, like all the pastors appear in lay clothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yep. It's really dangerous to wear well, this why, Catholic clerical clothing. Well, this was why in, physically. in the, the Council of Baltimore in the 19th century uh, that religious were asked not to wear their habits in public because it was thought to to antagonize. Uh, the 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 non-Catholic community, right? To antagonize and stir up anti-Catholicism, and actually bring violence upon the church. Yeah. The yeah. men, anyhow. Yeah, right. the men, anyhow. Yeah. But um, at least they know that things were at least still gentlemanly enough not to wantonly attack women. Thankfully, although they had, uh, I think Massachusetts had uh, committees. Boston had committees to uh, the anti-nunnery committees to investigate sure. the basements of nunneries for. <laughs> oh sure, sure, all those <laughs> you know, dead bodies and all the stories that were told. Oh, yeah, boy. yeah, that's still yeah. sort of there. <clears throat> You're listening to the Dominican Dimensions, a lively half hour of discussion about Catholic issues from a Dominican perspective. My name is Father Stephen Hayes, and I am a friar at St. Patrick Parish in Columbus. I'm joined today in the studio by Father Pius Petrick and Brother Isaiah Biter. We've been discussing anti-Catholicism in the present age in the country and its forerunners, and its forerunners. And then hopefully we'll get to talk about what to do about the present situation. Yeah, and I think we we've, uh, we want to talk a lot. Let's just briefly mention some of the legal aspects. Sure. Uh, you know, Father Father Hayes and I both have uh, law degrees. Uh, practiced for a little bit of time, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting case that's come out recently from the Supreme. A number of interesting cases actually that came out from the Supreme Court. Uh, one, especially on what were called known as the Blaine Amendments, mm-hmm. uh, which was originally an attempt to uh, amend the Constitution to prevent what the fu- any government funds going from sectarian religious entities. And in the 19th century, sectarian was just a code word for Catholic. Right? That's what they meant. They didn't right. want Catholics to get any money. Um, and while that failed at the constitutional level, a lot of states themselves passed these sort of Blaine Amendments in a way to prevent any public funds from going to religious entities. And so there was a case in, in um, I believe it was in Montana, about a, a scheme, uh, not a scheme, but a, a program to help 
uh, fund to provide some government funds or at least government tax relief to parents who sent their children to private schools, but the law prevented them from using those funds uh, or the, that tax benefit for Catholic schools. And the Supreme mm-hmm. Court recently came out and said, well, you can't do that, right? This is a discrimination against people because they're religious. Uh, you can't treat people worse just because they have a religious faith. And these Blaine Amendments and these restrictions on these public funds were not simply – and the court goes into this in great te- in detail. You should read, uh, read uh, Alito's uh, concurrence. Um, is uh, the, the background for these words was, we, as we know, explicitly anti-Catholic. Because what was happening is, is that in the country, there was a movement for public education mm-hmm. to create this. And you hear about this, and we want everybody to have a kind of common civic identity. Well, in that time, a common civic identity means to cast off your papism, right? right? To, so, be Protestant. to be Protestant. And there was explicit Protestant uh, uh, teaching in the schools. So Catholics said, well, we don't want to do that. We want to, we'll create our own schools, as we did. First right. thing you did, in you built a church, and the second thing you built was, was the, the school. school. Uh, and so, and the sisters came, many sisters' communities in the U.S. were formed precisely to educate children in the Catholic faith. Uh, and so there were deliberate attempts to make, to, to shut them down. There's a famous case out of Oregon, uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, which was an attempt to force even Catholic students to go to the public schools, basically so they could get a Protestant education. Mm-hmm. And when those didn't work, there were movements to make sure that no money at all ever went to these Catholic schools. And so we, we at least the legal climate in that sense uh, is more in our favor, but we should remember how much of the legal society in the U.S. That's true, and as you may know too, that's true even in the legal practice. It was very hard for you, you know, in the early, in the 1930s, or even to early 20th century, right. to even pass the bar in that's some right. places yeah. if you were a Catholic. Certainly to get into law school, to get into a law school as a Catholic was very difficult in an earlier age because you weren't considered, uh, it wasn't considered Reliable. proper. Right. You weren't reliable, and your your loyalties were questioned. Divided between, you know, the Constitution and your real allegiance to that monarch on oh, the yeah. throne of Peter. Oh, yeah. The, the old political cartoons from these things oh, were I quite mean, something. You know, the, the bishops, you know, as crocodiles. It, as crocodiles. crocodiles. They're, they're mightier as the jaws of crocodiles, the Thomas Nath cartoon. Yeah. And this yeah. kind of thing is still still exists, yeah. right? This this questioning of people's loyalty. It existed even for even the 20th century with John Kennedy question of, of whether he as president would would simply be a puppet for the pope in 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 policies in the united mm-hmm. states and you you still kind of hear these sorts of things uh so this this anti-catholicism has a strong history in the united states an institutional history in the united mm-hmm. states and while fortunately some of the legal aspects of it have been dismantled by the constitution by by the supreme court um, that this the attitude still remains, uh, and it's so it's a good question. How do we as Catholics, spiritually and and actually and, and in public life, deal with these sorts of things? I mean, I think it's been done in different ways. You know, if you look to the 1840s, you've got characters like Bishop John Hughes in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, when they burned all the Philadelphia ca- uh, churches, um, John Hughes used. Uh, Got the you know the Irish and the ancient order Hibernians to defend the churches physically. I mean, actually, ring the churches so that they wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't be wouldn't be hurt. You know, was, and you have a, sort of an example of this in in recent times of the statue of, of Saint Louis in Saint Louis about the 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 young very young priest. I think he was ordained a year, mm-hmm. and and the group of the faithful who went down to help try to protect the 
the the image that statue of, of St. Louis from mm-hmm. being destroyed by the right. mobs. Right. right. It seems like one of the first things mm-hmm. that and the foundation of our whole response to this is to allow our faith to be firm enough not to be shaken when it is questioned by the culture. There can be ways that when the culture has been more favorable, as you mentioned, Father Hayes, that there were times in the past century when the culture seemed pretty favorable to the Catholic Church. And there were ways that you could even be you know, publicly Catholic, and that was fine or welcomed or even encouraged. But today that's becoming less and less the case. Right. And... But we shouldn't allow that to to cause us to question ourselves as if public recognition were had anything to do with the victory I, I of think Christ. One important thing is to make, give a good account of what we actually are standing for, because the culture would have us standing against everything. But mm. if you really think about what this is, even the attacks on the statues of our Lord and Our Lady say it's a rejection of that image of humanity that we mm-hmm. see in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe what we have to be much more forward about is talking about this connection to jesus you know and his humanity that this is the humanity we're talking about this is what it is to be human is to live mm-hmm. the life of jesus christ and you see that in him and especially in his and, and also in his blessed mother and this is why the culture hates him hates this pattern of humanity that is generous and kind and sacrificing that does not look to itself that bears with evil you know that is sacri- you know has a love that is self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. You know that looks to build up families, not tear them apart. That <clears throat> uh, calls sin, calls sin and evil, sin and evil. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably the the big thing too is this recognition that there are things that are objectively evil and truly mm-hmm. evil. And it doesn't mean that we despair of these things, but the willingness to to say that things are evil. Uh, you know, rubs people a little bit the wrong way, mm-hmm. um, as they should uh, somewhat. Uh, but we do so, uh, even in the declaration of things that are evil, the, the declaration of things that are sins, we do so not simply to condemn the Lord comes not to judge, as it were, mm-hmm. or comes not to judge, but in order to provide healing and reconciliation. That the pointing out of sin is an opportunity for you to realize your that error, that wrong, so you could be reconciled with the Lord. But as Our Lady stands against the dragon in all ages, mm-hmm. and her image says suffers, I mean, if you mm-hmm. stand up for these things, you have to be ready to be strong enough to stand. Yeah, I always, I always, Sirach, go ahead. if I can, I get a agree. I always th- like this, you know, that Sirach... Uh, chapter 2. Cha- chapter 2, you know, my son, if you come forward to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for temptations. Set your heart right and be steadfast, and do not be hasty in time of climax. Uh, calamity. Okay. Um, it's one of my favorite passages it's of Scripture. It's a great, for gold is tested in fire. That's, I was waiting for you to get that. Yeah. Uh, I, it's beautiful, beautiful. And it's a reminder to us, this is the Lord talked about all the time, is that to be a Christian in the world means to face the possibility of persecution. And I think over the last some years that perhaps we as Catholics have gotten rested on our laurels a bit because uh, that kind of persecution has seemed to hide away. But it was just the devil only hides, right? He never goes fully away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things I, I think about is sometimes the people I encounter with the strongest faith are people from the South, mm-hmm. where, where the Catholicism has yes. the, 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 is not as big. Because to be a Catholic in the South in the past was you were constantly tested on your faith. You mm-hmm. always constantly had to give an accounting of your faith, as I think, was it what is, Saint P- is that Peter's letter says, uh, that, that ability to account for your faith. And so you've got to make a decision early on. Am I going to defend this faith 
That is to say, am I going to identify myself with this Catholicism that I was baptized into and let it really permeate who I am, or am I just going to give give away to the people who are prodding me, give away to the bullies? Um, and I think that's what we a Catholic really these days has to has to do. If you want to be a Catholic these days, you've got to realize you are going to suffer persecution. People are going to challenge you on your faith. They're going to hate you because of your faith, right? They'll do everything they can to destroy you in many ways because of of your faith. And you have to ask yourself: Is this faith important enough to me that I'm willing to risk that? Yeah. To break out that quote from Sirach even a little bit more, you know, Ben Sirach, the author is. One of his big themes is how friends, the true friend, has to be tested because a lot of people will only stand by you in good times and then when the bad times come, they'll fall away or they just wanted to take advantage of you. And perhaps part of a suggestion in his putting in the second chapter of his long book, this emphasis on the temptation and trial that God gives to us who try to follow him is that he, this is what it takes to really be a friend of God is to stand by him in the difficult times and to to not be a fair-weather friend of God. And that sort of means leaving a life of active penitence, I think, mm-hmm. of constantly yeah. turning towards God, constantly turning away from sin, and using the disciplines that are part of that life. You know, I mean, the early church didn't have a frequent weekly confessions of venial sins, but she had fasting. Oh, sure. <laughs> Right, the life of penance existed, yeah. Yeah. right, for, for the other church in yeah. a real way. And it's also, I think, important to have not just a, a penitential understanding, mm-hmm. but an eschatological one as well. Yeah. This understanding that the, the suffering that I go through in this world isn't eternity. Mm-hmm. All of this is meant to prepare me for what's to come. That is for a life of eternity with God. And when when you understand that this world isn't the end of all things, then you can live for something that's beyond this world, then that ability to, to as it were, suffer the slings and arrows of, uh, of this outrageous fortune becomes somewhat, I think, more understandable. Right. But here we are being trained as athletes and warriors mm-hmm. for the Lord yeah. and need to take on you know, the same kind of focus of mind. St. Paul talks about this, that athletes and warriors do. Oh. Now, and that, now, that doesn't mean that we deliberately antagonize those who wish to persecute us, uh, right? Oh, no, I wasn't suggesting that. Uh, no, no, no. Although there's some that I have to say, there's, there's a, there is, you do see this, unfortunately, in a strain of certain, um, um, uh, strain of Catholicism, even in the U.S., this idea that we, we should just antagonize them and call them names and that sort of no. thing. And that's not, I mean, to be a Christian is to be loving. Jesus did not... Mm-hmm. Okay, Jesus sometimes called the Pharisees names, but uh, the uh, the idea is uh, that he ultimately accepted uh, the the punishment that was given to him, although unjustly, uh, out of love. And so, even with those who persecute us, we respond in love. There was an, uh, the bishops, the U.S. bishops, mm-hmm. uh, recently in commenting about on this, Bishop Wensky uh, issued a statement saying, you know, we we see all this anti-Catholicism. But we are remind ourselves that uh, we always respond ultimately in love because this is what our Lord calls us to do. And truth, I would say. Yeah, I mean, sure. Bishop Hughes, who I said, you know, physically defended the, the churches, also took the an, advent, an initiative by public dis- disputing. I mean, I'm not suggesting everybody does this, but a bishop did this public disputing uh, uh, the ignorance about Catholicism mm-hmm. that was so rife in his period, which he did mm-hmm. both in the newspapers and in public uh, forum, 
uh, talking with a night of disputation between himself and some Protestant minister and yeah, so forth yeah, to explain it, the faith. Yeah, as I, I sometimes there's so much ignorance about what we oh, actually sure, teach. Sure, and sometimes you, I see that in sort of the media, these people who are, these non-Catholics who attack Catholicism, and I sort of respond, "Well, if 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 I thought Catholicism said what you <laughs> right. think it says, exactly. I wouldn't be Catholic either." Right. right? Fortunately, it doesn't say what you think it says. Uh, which I think is uh, important for us. And I do wish we would... Uh, the problem is we live in a society in which that rational discourse is no mm-hmm. longer a virtue, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the problem, is that there, it's it's more and more difficult to find a common ground of reason on which to even begin to argue with people. You you find that, too, even in, in uh, ecumenism, right? Where you have... Although we have a strong tradition of philosophy about mm-hmm. the union of faith and reason right. in the Catholic tradition, you often have non-Catholics who have no such connection. Right. And so the question is, is, where do you start when we can't even work together on that common ground of especially, rational discourse? Especially when Catholics have already been labeled, before the conversation even starts, as bigots as people who are irrational who take not reason but some book from a long time ago as their guide right right or or sometimes we're we're, we're associated with views that we don't hold you get you know they think that just because some christian says it means all christians say it it's just not exactly true uh, i i just remember the one i remember someone was asked if you could ask the pope one question what would it be? And this sort of atheist friend of mine said, well, I'd ask him, what does he think about the dinosaurs? And I, I thought, well, what a remarkably stupid question. Right. Uh, because, of course, the Pope has no problem with dinosaurs because Catholics aren't, you know, sort of philosophically opposed to, to evolution. Right. Uh, and certainly uh, not to dinosaurs. Right. So people take sort of non-Catholic views and apply it to us as if we believe some of these things, which I always find a bit strange. Yeah. So we shine like the sun, you know. Sometimes you just have to keep speaking the truth, I think. Shine like the sun on the fields of the just and unjust. You know, allow the grace of God to find a purchase on souls. And well, and Christ says, when he says to let, to be a city on a hill and let your lamp shine, he follows immediately with, let your good works shine before men. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we can look past as, you know, perhaps the primary way that we can witness to those who aren't willing to have a conversation with us is by proving ourselves people of mercy following in the footsteps of Christ. Yeah. And with that... Oh, go ahead, Father. Did you no, I, and, I, and I, yeah, I was saying that is, is and, and with that is to make sure that we never fall into despair, is that when you're persecuted because of your faith, and it's going to happen, and I think it's going to happen more frequently, Jesus is, said. is we still need to be rooted in hope, in the hope that we are to called still to at attorney with God, and that persecution is not a sign of God's disfavor, often quite the contrary. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today for the Dominican Dimensions. My name is Father Stephen Dominic Hayes, and I'm a friar at St. Patrick Priory in Columbus. I've been joined in the studio today by Father Pius Petrick, our very special guest, and Brother Isaiah Biter. Let's end now in prayer, uh, invoking the intercession of the founder of the Dominican Order. O light of the Church, teacher of truth, rose of patience, ivory of chastity, freely you have poured forth the waters of wisdom. Preacher of grace, unite us with the blessed. Amen. Dominican Dimensions is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Dominican Dimensions and all of our locally produced programs are available at stgabrielradio.com. Sancti